Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the gospel of Matthew. Um, Lord, as we enter in to this greatest sermon ever preached uh, by the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us over the next few weeks and months, Lord, to have understanding and clarity, um, that it would be personal to us, Lord. We ask that you would, uh, through your Spirit, illuminate the meaning of this text. Father, we pray that you would get our hearts in a right position, that we would be able to receive a word from you. Lord, we thank you for um, conviction. We thank you for um, your prodding, your moving us along in our walk with you, that we ultimately would become more and more like Christ. So, Father, we ask for your help. Um, We ask that you would bless our time now as we worship you through the studying of your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name, amen. So so today we are entering into um, what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see that Jesus is going to go up on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and he's going, going to teach this sermon that will last from chapters 5, 6, and 7. If we were to read it straight through, it would take anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes to get, to get through it in its entirety. Um, it's believed by most biblical scholars and Christians that this is the greatest sermon that has ever been preached in human history. Uh, those who are not of the faith, um, those who study rhetoric, um, are atheists, they believe and would hold that this is one of the greatest speeches of all time. Uh, it, it sort of boggles my mind that somebody who doesn't believe would acknowledge that this, um, that this message of Jesus is so profound. Uh, but the evidence, I guess, is overwhelming for them. Um, this message is, is going to be a difficult uh, message to go through. Um, we'll have to keep some boundaries up. Um, in dealing with its purpose, um, I believe that the, one of the, the key purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to demonstrate Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, we read, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you skim down to verse 23, uh, it says Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so Matthew, I believe, after these few chapters, he sort of established that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he is the Christ. We see that he is, throughout his life, had been teaching on the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew places this sermon very early in his gospel, which this sermon 
sort of is the is explanation, is the, the actual teaching, um, the premises that Jesus uh, was sharing about the kingdom of heaven. Um, a key thing for us to keep in mind as we go through this sermon over the next probably few months is this is not a teaching on how to become a Christian. This is not a teaching on how to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is not about getting eternal life, but it's all about how eternal life is displayed in the individual who is followed after the king. Um, this is a message that's designed for us ind- individually to examine within ourselves, to, for our lives, the individuals. This was not a political message, which is what the Jews were looking for at the time. They were longing for the king. They were longing for the promises of the king that would come to reign and to rule, to throw the yoke of Rome off of their backs. Uh, but Jesus is intentionally looking at the character and the inward quality of those that would enter uh, the kingdom. This is not a, a, a nationalistic sort of message, even though um, presidents and politicians will quote from this um, there's a danger that could surface is if we turn this into a political or a nationalistic sort of message, then what's going to happen is our emphasis is going to be on legislating behavior and coming up with a bunch of rules, um, creating sort of legalism. And that's not at all what this message is intended to do. And this message is deeply convicting. Um, uh, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. But it's deeply convicting. As we go through this, we each um, will be poked and prodded and sort of convicted in ways um, that we probably wouldn't choose to be poked and prodded and convicted of. Um, There are about 36 different um, acknowledged ways of interpreting this sermon. nine of which are accepted by evangelicals, which creates, um, for the person teaching it, it's like sifting through the weeds. Um, So I'm going to sort of present what I believe uh, from an evangelical perspective, what I believe that this sermon meant, how it was to be applied. Um, But but I will hold it very humbly and loosely, loosely to a certain point within the nine that are accepted by evangelicals. Um, As you work through this sermon, if you were to read through chapters five, six, and seven multiple times, some questions would surface in your mind. One of the questions that will surface is, is this teaching concerning the millennium? The millennium is what the Bible talks about in Revelation, that the Messiah will come uh, for a second coming And in his second coming, he will reign and rule for a thousand years. I believe the answer to that question is yes, this does apply um, to that period. Um, Another question would be, is this sermon a manifesto or a constitution of the millennium age? And the answer to that would be yes as well. Um, Another question would be, does this sermon amplify or sort of interpret uh, the law that was found in the Old Testament, um, thus 
showing us how devastating our, our sin is? And the answer to that question is yes. And what I mean by that one is as we get going into this, Jesus multiple times will say phrases, uh, as you've, you've heard it said, that, uh, that if you commit adultery, this should be the sort of the result. And he says, but I say to you that if a man looks at a woman with lust, he's committed adultery in his heart. And other times he says, if a man, you've heard it said that if a man takes another man's life, then this. But I say to you, if you, uh, have a, if you hate your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart. So he takes the Old Testament law and he shares the spirit behind the law, ultimately condemning every individual. There's no way that any of us could maintain the standard that's found in the law. Paul writes in Galatians that the law is a, is a school teacher, is a, is a tutor that helps the individual recognize how sinful they are and it will lead them to Christ so that they uh, would lean upon him for salvation alone. Another question that, that often is, is brought up in, in the theological circles that I came from is, is this sermon intended for Christians today? And I would answer that the question is yes to that. Um, most of the commands are, are, are reinstated in other places in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament. But some would get so far into the millennium that they say, well, this is teaching that was for the millennium. The millennium is not here yet. Um, I I struggle with that one. Um, I think that the tension that we're going to feel as we work through these three chapters, if you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, I think Paul gives us great insight that will help us sort of navigate the tension that we feel as we work through this. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, if I can find it, verse 20, as he writes from prison to this church that supports him, he writes to them, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my, be- my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, the reason I brought this, this passage up, as it relates to the Sermon on the Mount, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you are a Christian, The Bible tells us that we have received the Holy Spirit, that we've been sealed in him. Uh, In one sense, we've we've been issued passports to the kingdom of heaven. Bless you. And he says that our citizenship, even though we live here in this earth, even even though we work, we live, we play, we go through our lives uh, for us in the United States, our, our true head, our true citizenship is in the future life is in heaven. And he goes on to say that while we're here, there's, there's a struggle in this body. But when we get to that day, we will be given new glorified bodies. There will be no, no struggle with sin, infirmity, uh, the things that we wrestle with on this day. So we long within us for that day when we go to heaven, our true kingdom, uh, where we belong. And he goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 4, 
that while we're here, there's going to be this struggle because we have the spirit within us, but our flesh is here. And he encourages us that while we're here, even though our flesh is weak, we press on towards Christ. We stand firm in him so that even though we're away from our spiritual home, that we will attempt to walk in the spirit, that we would stand firm in him. Um, Hopefully that makes sense. That will help us as we navigate um, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The final question that is often asked about the Sermon on the Mount is does the sermon actually demonstrate uh, the grace of God in a person's life? And to that I would say absolutely yes. Um, As it amplifies the law, um, the, the whole purpose of this sermon will show our deep, deep need for the cross of Christ, our deep, deep need for the Spirit, and our deep, deep need for God's grace to, to work in our lives. And so we enter this sermon. A crowd had been growing. We see in verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, so we have the picture. He'd been in uh, the Capernaum area. Uh, crowds had begun to follow, um, huge crowds. Those who had responded to the message of repentance, uh, of John the Baptist, of Jesus' teaching, uh, to repent for the kingdom of God is near. They've been baptized for the repentance of their sins. They, they humbled themselves. They're following after Christ. He leads them up the hill. And he's going to teach them. The picture behind me, for you guys to sort of daydream at during the message, is is pretty much the picture that if you were one of the disciples, the picture you would have looked at. This is um, a picture of the spot on the Sermon of the Mount. If you go to Israel today or if you've been to Israel, this is up on the hill. We're looking to the south towards Jerusalem. So 60 miles pretty much from the spot down is, is Jerusalem. To the left is the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum would just be just down the hillside here. Um, th- this would have been an ideal spot to teach. Um, Jesus would have sat down with the Sea of Galilee behind him. Uh, the disciples would have been in front of him overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It formed a sort of a natural sort of uh, acoustic spot where Jesus could speak and his voice would travel to the people. Um, so what you're seeing is exactly, it might have been a cloudy day, I don't know, but that's essentially what they were looking at. Um, and so we begin with the Beatitudes. Between verses 3 and 12, there are eight Beatitudes that are mentioned. Um, blessed are the, we will read this many, many times. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you. This word blessed is a word that literally means happiness, joy. Um, Homer used this word to describe the wealthy. Plato used this word to describe someone who is successful in their business. Um, this is not a passage uh, of Jesus telling individuals to chase 
happiness, even though most humans desire, long for happiness, for contentment. These are not commands to obtain happiness. Rather, these are, are statements that are sort of proverbial statements or truisms that Jesus say, is saying that this is um, sort of the pathway, um, not maybe not the pathway to happiness, but if you look at a person that is blessed, who is happy, who is content, these are um, characteristics that you'll find of those who have found contentment. And so the first one, this being poor in spirit, uh, this beatitude flows throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount and probably really all of Jesus' teaching. Um, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This one and the last beatitude are the only two that are in the present tense. Uh, it doesn't, all of the rest say, blessed is this person for they will, and it points to the future. But for this one, it's in the present tense. Uh, this idea of being poor, if you were to do a word search on this wor- word and how it's used, um, poor is literally a, a poor, destitute beggar um, uh, to the extreme sense uh, it can carry with it the, the connotation of, of cowering down or hiding, um, just kind of hiding themselves, reaching for any sort of beg, begging for any sort of resource. Um, this is totally, total and complete poverty-stricken, um, powerless by, by any means to, to help themselves. This is not dealing with um, the individuals who are literally poor financially, um, poor in spirit. It's connected to um, their spiritual posture before God. Um, Understanding that there is a spiritual bankruptness that we bring to the table before God. There is absolutely nothing that we as humans can bring to the table before God. God is holy. We are not. That we we don't bring 60% and we just need God for the 40%. We have nothing. We are totally and completely bankrupt. This is sort of the picture of repentance, of agreeing with God, turning from our sin, understanding that we are hopeless. Jesus will teach about children and helpless babies that they will inherit the kingdom. This idea of complete and total humility before him. Um, Thinking about this idea of being poor in spirit, it really ultimately is the bad news before the good news. If you want to receive Christ, if you want to understand why the gospel is such good news, you you need to understand the darkness and and the, the danger, the ugliness of our sin. I'll never forget, it was probably 13 and a half years ago or so. Um, I was making arrangements in my mind to propose to Anna. And it was probably one of, like, going to a, a engagement ring store is like the worst thing any single, like, jewelry stores to start for guys. And then if you go to an engagement ring store, it's like you're, you're walking into the store as a target. And they come up, how can we help you, sir? This is an engagement ring store, right? <laughs> like, 
Can I get you a glass of wine? Can I get you some water? Can I get you? I'm like, no, the last thing I need is wine. Like, I don't, like, I don't, need, I don't need you guys like, taking advantage of me. And I remember walking into this place saying, okay, I have so much money. I want a small little, little rock. Don't, don't get all the bells and whistles out. It's like, sir, 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 we'll just take you into the back room. I'm like, I don't want to go into the back room. I don't want to fall prey to your schemes. And the lady said, no, 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 let's sit down. Here's a bottle of water. And she like somehow dimmed all of the lights. So it went from fluorescent lighting to this one beam was like shining on her desk. And I'm like, I'm in some, I'm like, I have this much money. I don't care about all of the other stuff. Like I, and she whips out this little black cloth. And then she, all of the stones, which look the same, suddenly she put them under that light in the black cloth. And it was like a disco party started in the office because it was like, like just all of the little cuts and it was beautiful. And the black cloth showed the beauty of the rock. It highlighted it. And and the, the point of what I'm saying behind this is when we come to God to enter the kingdom, we recognize how bad our black cloth is. We're totally, completely bankrupt before him. And it's only by his grace, by his mercy, do we enter the kingdom. And so the main point of Jesus' teaching and the heart of the whole Beatitudes is that if you don't repent, if you don't see yourself as spiritually impoverished, if you don't see yourself as spiritually poor and needy, then you aren't going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This attitude of being poor in spirit can manifest itself in a number of ways. Two individuals this week in my study kept sort of surfacing. Two great um, theological guys in Christian history. The first is from the 4th century, which Augustine, uh, he was a great theologian. The other one is Luther. These guys couldn't be more contrasted from one another. Uh, Augustine came about in the 4th century. His mom was a Christian. Like every good Christian mom, she wants nothing more than her little boy uh, to become a Christian. Augustine was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man who rejected the gospel, wanted nothing to do with the gospel. Um, in his giftedness of mind, the schools that he went to, he, his main school that he studied under was a, a school of rhetoric. So now you have this guy who's resistant to the gospel, has a brilliant mind, and knows how to attack the things of Christianity. He was uh, completely and totally in the world as it related to women, to drink, to just uh, the hedonistic lifestyle. One of his most famous prayers during this time was a prayer that he prayed, Lord, give me chastity, but just not today. You can laugh at that. (laughs) The the, the guy was, was not the greatest guy. And then as he lives his life, his mom continued to pray for him. And then in his depravity, one day the gospel strikes him in a whole new way and he recognizes that he is totally depraved and totally in need of God's grace and the gospel to to be saved. And he gives his life to Christ and he begins growing spiritually and history records him as this great theologian. Now on the other end of the spectrum, we have Luther. Luther from another well-to-do family was an attorney, was... um, was, you know, he came to, well, I don't think he came to Christ. He, he wanted to enter into the monkhood. 
So he was growing with the Catholic Church. He was full of piety and all sorts of religiousness. And it wasn't until that day when he was uh, doing his penance of crawling up the steps on his knees, trying to make up for his sinfulness, that the great line from Habakkuk comes that the, 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 uh, the righteous shall live by faith. And it strikes him that all of his religiousness, all of his self-righteousness, all of this was worthless. Like Paul writes, that it was rubbish. And he humbles himself before God. And he gives his life to Christ. And he would be a movement in the Reformation that God would use in a huge, huge way. And so both of these men, what they have is they're both poor in spirit. They're both bankrupt of righteousness before God. One guy was a total just heathen. The other guy was a religious guy. And yet both of them, in order to enter into a relationship with Christ, required this ultimate sense of humility. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the question is, do you feel entitled? If you feel entitled to going to heaven, then you're not poor in spirit. Or do you feel like God owes you something? If you have the attitude that God owes you anything, you're not poor in spirit. And the point of, of Jesus' opening line in his sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, that this attitude of total humility and dependence upon God is the, the earmark of the Christian life. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so we, we see this word mourning. Um, there's three Greek words that sort of vary in scale of, of mourning. Uh, the lightest would be would be equivalent of if I go to if I drive through a burger joint and I really want a chocolate shake and I order a chocolate shake and they say I'm sorry we're all out of shakes today I would be sort of depressed because if I want a chocolate shake and they don't have a chocolate shake I'm going to be sort of man that's bad news like what am I going to do we're going to drive around you guys are not laughing today this is then on the, the far extreme word, which is the word for this mourn, would be mourning of a loved one, a spouse, death. This deep, deep sort of agony and pain and sorrow that's not mended. And the idea here is not losing a loved one. It's the idea of death that comes from sin. This deep sorrow of your sinfulness and how vile it is before God. Understanding who you are in relationship to him. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I stumbled across a poem that seems to convey um, the heart of this. We live in an age and a culture where even from the pulpit, people don't share about sin. One famous pastor was asked, why don't you preach on sin? And he said, well, it's too depressing and too discouraging for people. But the problem is if we don't identify how heinous our sin is before God, we never get ourselves in the correct posture to receive his grace. And in this poem I read this week, it says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And, 
And I think that there's this picture of, in a sense, mourning and real mourning. Difficulties in life bring so much more wisdom and growth in our own lives than do the good times. But when we're faced with our sin and we become repulsed uh, for how horrible our sin is, growth happens there. I think of Paul, you know, the great apostle in Philippians 3, 6, when he reflects on his old life before Christ, when he talked about the law, he said, righteousness that is found in the law, I was found blameless. And so he's looking back on his life and he says, before I was a Christian, if you were to examine me, I would have stood before you and said, according to the whole law and all of the yoke that was placed on me by the rabbis, I was blameless before the law. But then you look at the same guy following his life post-conversion and then writing the New Testament in Romans chapter 7. He talks about this great struggle within him, that there are the things that he wants to do and those things that he desires to do, he doesn't do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, those are the very things that he ends up doing. And by the end of this passage in Romans 7 verse 24, he ends with this huge statement of, wretched man that I am. And here's this guy who is the apostle to the the Gentiles, to the church, is penning the scripture, who is walking in Christ, and he suddenly is so gripped by how ugly his sin is that it just disgusts him, and it humbles him before the Lord. And I think that this is the, the, the picture that Jesus is getting at. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's this hope that our sins are paid for, that Christ paid it all on the cross. That when we die and we go to heaven and we receive our glorified bodies, this the sin nature of ours will be done away with. And Jesus, I believe, wants us as his followers to, to truly to mourn, to grieve over our sinfulness. Because in this, it points us to him and our great need for him. Moving on to verse 5. We read, Blessed are the gentle, or your translation could read meekness. It's the same word, same connotation. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, this picture of meekness or gentleness is not to be confused with weakness. This is sort of the idea of the great strength that has great discipline, um, great restraint upon it. Over and over again in my study this week, the, the idea of a, of a trained horse comes to mind. Um, horses are amazing creatures with their, their great strength. Uh, I was reminded of our time in Hereth. If we can go to the next slide here, I have this beautiful picture of a horse. This is in Andalusia in Hereth, Spain. And these are their horses that ultimately the, the Swiss ones were bred from. I'm, I'm blanking on the other ones' names. And so we went to this horse show in, in Spain. And I remember we, feel, we filled into the arena. And things were getting ready to get going. They dimmed the lights. The music stopped. And you could tell that the, the, like the anticipation of what was about to happen was, was building from all the visitors. And this guy who kind of dressed like this comes like, just screeching into the arena. And I'm getting emotional. Like I start crying. And Anna looks at me. She's like, are you crying? Why are you crying? This is just horses. I'm like, these aren't just horses. 
This is the guy on the horse from when he was a little boy. His dad and his grandfather passed this tradition on that he's been training his whole life for this excellent. And these horses are, I mean, I can't tell you all about the horses, but they're like amazing horses. They, they, were, they were bred for war and for combat. And they do all of these displays where they can like lift each of their feet up independently. The guy will come up and they can like jump up into the air and kick their back legs out. Just absolutely amazing creatures and this amazing relationship between uh, the, the, the people and the, the creatures. And during this show, the thing that most impressed me was not in everything that went right. There was a what could have been a horrible accident and I was just absolutely blown away. Um, so they have uh, buggies. And so the, they have four or six horses. I don't remember how many horses there were. I think there were about six horses. And the horses came like just tearing through the arena. And then the circle got tighter and tighter to where they were essentially doing donut holes in the middle of the arena. And the lead horses had so tightened their circle that they actually stepped into the reins of the other horses and all of their legs got tangled up. And I'm sitting there going, I don't think this is part of the show. And about 10 Spaniards jump out of the arena and run down to the horse. And the thing that impressed me so much, I don't have horses, but if I had a horse, this is where they would all just go crazy, tear everything apart, tear through the house, the fence, the neighbor's cars, and just go crazy. When the Spaniards jumped down, the trainers and ran to the horses, these horses just stood there and lifted their legs for the trainers. It was just this, in their strength, there was just great discipline and gentleness, and none of the horses were hurt. And I think that this is the, the, the picture that, that Jesus is making. This is, what, this is the description of meekness and gentleness. And, and think that there's no greater individual to talk about meekness. The Bible says that when the, if you go back to Genesis that God spoke creation into existence. You follow that through, and you see in Colossians, when Paul describes who Jesus is, says that he spoke the creations into existence, and that he holds all things together. Scientists today will tell you that, that, that the world is breaking apart, that, that the thing that causes death, like the second law of thermodynamics, that all things are moving from order to disorder. And all they can tell you at the molecular level, and I'm not a scientist or even claim to be one, but in my basic understanding is that scientists say that the, the atoms within a cell are moving away from each other. And eventually when they move too far, things disintegrate. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. He is all powerful. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 Verses 3 through 5, instructing the church, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to share this attitude that Christ have, that being God, he came to earth in the form of a man that he lived this life, that he lived perfectly, that he went to the cross and was executed shamefully before man. And it wasn't because he couldn't at any time said, I'm done with this, I'm not doing the cross. I'm not, he could have just wiped out everybody there that was trying to execute him. 
yet in his meekness and his gentleness by his choice so that he could provide a means of a relationship with us to him. He endured the cross. He was not weak. He was not unable to defend himself. He went to the cross at his own time, by his own will, by his, by his own desire. But this goes against everything that our culture tells us. When the atheist philosopher Nitschke, I think that's how you say it, German philosopher, when he came to the Sermon on the Mount reviewing the biblical text, when he read that the meek inherit the earth, he said it was a lie. He responded, assert yourself. It's the arrogant who take over the earth. It's the same that we go, the nice guys finish last, right? That everything that Jesus is saying is sort of counterintuitive to what we our culture tells us. The meek person isn't easily offended or sensitive. You can rarely offend a meek person because anything you say against him, he generally agrees with. The opposite of a meek person is one who is easily offended and very sensitive. But the meek person is just humbled that God has mercy on him. And so these very close to the first one, this picture, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Finally, we come to the last one that we're going to look at today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, When we look at the picture of repentance, Throughout Matthew, John the Baptist came with a repent for the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says the same thing. But repentance isn't so easily defined. Um, It would be very easy for us to come up with a list of things not to do. Um, As we come up with a list of things that we shouldn't do, which so often happens, uh, we create sort of little police officers for God who become legalistic and we feel like it's our job to write tickets out to the whole world. But when we come up with a list of things not to do, it doesn't necessarily paint a picture of what what repentance is. That's, it focuses on the external when this whole teaching of Christ is all about the internals. And I believe that this hunger and thirst for righteousness is the fruit of repentance so that as we turn from our sins, as we turn to God in, in humility, in mourning as, with a gentle spirit, poor in spirit before him, that I believe that the fruit of this repentance shifts to this hunger and desire for righteousness. Um, I think it was John Piper who says that he believes that God created um, our need to eat solely for the purpose that Jesus could use his illustrations about being the bread of life and using phrases like this, hunger and thirst for righteousness. God didn't need to make us so that we had to eat. But eating is amazing, isn't it? Amen? Like, come on, we, we all... Uh, Friday, I was with a... No, th- I think it was Thursday. I was actually with, you know, your two cousin and R- their cousin, Roy. We were suddenly, I think we were all hungry. He's like, food is just amazing. He's like, it just shows God's beauty and his creativity that there are all kinds of foods that we can eat. And when you don't have food is when you most 
crave food. When I was in high school, I was, well, was my low point in, one of my lower points in life. I got sent away to Aspen Achievement Academy, a, uh, a scared straight sort of program in Utah. It was six weeks long, and they starved us. And I want to say by the, the second or third week, I heard one of the instructors talking about the meal that he'd had the night before. And he shared about how he had this coconut cream pie. And it sounded amazing. So for the next, however long it was, three weeks, four weeks, it seemed like an eternity. All I could think about was coconut cream pie and how desperate I wanted coconut cream pie. It's my favorite pie to this day because of that moment. Like if I have coconut cream pie, it takes me to that little window when I was just yearning for coconut cream pie. It's like all I wanted. It's all I could think about. People who leave San Diego and go to other places in the world, when I pick them up, what they want to do is they want to stop at a greasy taco shop. I need to get a carne asada burrito. You just can't get these anywhere else. All I want is good Mexican food. All I want. All I want is. And it's interesting to me that when we look at this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How much righteousness do we bring to the table? None. We, we have no righteousness to offer to God. And our lack of it should create this deep desire for it. That as we come to Christ, as we receive his spirit, as we have this now this dual citizenship, we should long for something that we know we haven't fully experienced. It's not saying that we're righteous or perfect, but that within us there's this desire, this, this longing for more of it. He uses hunger and thirst. I can't tell you how many times I say I like salt. And so if I have a really salty meal, it normally backfires about two in the morning. I'll start having dreams. Like I'll wake up in the morning. I'm like, man, I dreamt for, it seemed like all night long, I was just sitting at the water fountain, just drinking all night long. And I'm dying of thirst. Because when you're thirsty, when you're hungry. And so there's this, sorry, I got thirst. Just reminded me of that. I Longing for righteousness. But the problem is, is that we like sin. We enjoy sin. We can even know that sin is bad for us and it can make us miserable, yet we so often dabble with it. And I'm not going to attempt today to, to suggest a bunch of things that hinder our appetite for righteousness because we're prone to make lists and we're prone to make do's and don'ts. But I would encourage you that as we read this, that you be praying, Lord, what are things that are, that are ruining my appetite for righteousness? I, I know that if I have a little snack, it kind of ruins my appetite. A couple times this week, and I wasn't trying to make a sermon illustration, Anna had cooked dinner and said, hey, it's dinner time. I'm like, oh, I'm not really hungry. I had a little snack a couple hours ago. Well, what did you have? Eight rolled tacos? Like, Gunner, that's not a snack. That's a meal. I'm like, but I was really hungry. And I, well, I'll eat dinner anyhow just to be a good boy. <laughs> but there are things 
when we talk about food and meals that we can participate in that destroy our appetite, and I do believe that there are things in this life that could be not even bad things, but there are things that could rob our appetite for righteousness. And so my prayer is that we would, as we come before God, to say, Lord, what are things that are robbing me of my appetite, that I want more of you? Or, or maybe it's, I don't even desire you, I don't crave you, and I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I want to want you. J. Wilbur Chapman said this, anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me and I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is willing to make lifestyle changes. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, As we close... So we read the Beatitudes that we study today are blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, I saw a couple places that had taken these and, and supplied the opposites, and I merged them together. And so if we were to take these Beatitudes and look at them from a different angle, the opposite. This is how they would read. Unhappy are the spiritually self-sufficient, for theirs is the kingdom of hell. Unhappy are those who deny the tragedy of their sinfulness, for they will be troubled. Unhappy are the self-centered, for they will be empty. Unhappy are those who ceaselessly justify themselves, for their efforts will be in vain. And the whole heart of this is that we would humbly turn to Jesus because the righteousness that we need, the righteousness that we should desire is found only in him. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that Christ came, that he paid it all. We thank you for his teaching. Father, we pray that you would create a a, a right spirit within us Father, that we would understand who you are, that we would understand grace. Father, that you would help us to walk in grace, Lord. Father, we're thankful um, for the work that you have done and are doing in our life. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to honor you in this life. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.